At some point in the course of the sermon, we're going to be showing a skit. Um, it is from a group called Studio C. Um, very talented group. Um, I, I do not necessarily endorse them as a group, but God has blessed them with creativity. I appreciate that. And I believe that uh, even though there's, there's not a clear Christian message in the video, you will see one, however. Um, so thank you guys for being here this morning. I believe that God wants to speak some truth here, even if it's a very simple truth. And even if it's one that you have heard many times, I don't believe so, but we, we need to grasp a hold of this truth that we're going to be getting at today. Because if we don't, as followers of Jesus Christ, there is this serious danger that we will become weary, that Satan will bring us to that point where we want to quit and throw in the towel. And that's that very difficult question, why should I pursue Christ anyway? Now, now you may be sitting here this morning and you are saved and I'm going to say praise God that he has rescued you from your sin. Now some of you may not have heard that message before that, I mean, Jesus came to rescue me? I thought he came to save me. I'm, and I want to ask you, is there a difference? It's just that sometimes this word save gets a little overworked and it's a biblical term. It's an English word, but the Greek word sozo means to rescue, not just save. And, and I say that because sometimes we miss when Christ came, he came to rescue us from our sins, and, and we were sin addicts by nature, under God's wrath, rightly so, because he's holy, and guess what? We are not, newsflash, and that's why he needed to rescue us, every one of us, but let's understand that once we have been rescued from our sins, and we are in the process of seeking to walk out that righteous, out that salvation by serving him. Understand our salvation is not based on those good works. It is based on faith. Now Satan realizes, man, I've lost this guy or this girl. And he, try, he tries so hard to, tr to discourage you and get you to that point where you want to take that proverbial towel and throw it in the ring. You want to give up. He wants to try and neutralize you. He wants to do this in many different ways. Today, I want us to look at how he will do that to, in, in this way of discouraging us. Now, I want to share a hypothetical story with you. How many of you have ever seen a marathon on TV? How many of you have ever seen the entire marathon on TV? Yeah, I didn't. Have you really? <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Ooh, look at that watch. Oh, my goodness, time is passing, just not quickly enough. Yeah, and the, and the truth is, uh, marathons can be very long, but this particular marathon was a record holding, a little over two hours, breaks the world record. I think it's a little over two hours that's the world record, isn't it? Can you, can you imagine running over 26 miles in just a bit over two hours? Oh, man. But this guy, and he's, he's running, and he's way ahead of everybody, and as he crosses the finish line, everyone stands to their feet, and they're applauding him as they see on the board a record holder as it's flashing world record. Amazing, and everyone's cheering and applauding him. Four hours later, the last contestant crosses the finish line. And no less a thunderous applause as everybody rises to their feet and cheers him on as he is stumbling across the finish line. And a bystander who just happened to be there at that moment would wonder, I understand the applause given to the winner, but this guy is in last place. Why are we applauding him? And then the person next to him says, because this person has been half crippled and handicapped his entire life, and this is his first marathon, and he did it in six hours. And when you begin to hear his life story unfold, it is a story of tragedy and success. It just seemed like those successes were so few and far between. And sometimes, you know, honestly, I think we need to tweak and, and maybe completely overhaul our definition 
of success because we understand the winner and how hard he worked and, and just the abilities of God that he, had, he has been given and, you know, like chariots of fire. I love that movie, right? And this guy, and he, he, he stands by his convictions and he works hard and he says, I love to run because when I run, I feel God's favor. I'm not a great accent on that, but you, you just, yes, yes, you feel his favor because you were wired to run and you're running for his glory, except he had a much better accent than me. And so I, I love those stories, but then is that really what success is? Do we define our success by complete victory, by winning, by being the best. Can I just say that if that's the case, then very few succeed in life. And the Bible says that we are called super conquerors, Romans 8. Hyper, literally, the Greek is hyper conquerors. Super, we get the word super from Hooper in the Greek. Super conquerors, you are a super conqueror. And you're trying to think, when did I conquer? When did I win anything? Do we define success then simply by effort? We're going to show this video in just a moment to get it ready. Do we define it just by trying? If it's not just by winning, then is it just because we tried? And I'm going to tell you that neither of these extremes are necessarily God's definition of success. So I'm going to have us just watch this short little video, and we'll go from there. Oh, yeah, you guys just moved into the neighborhood, right? Yes, sir. I'm Gary. This is my son, Morgan. Well, we're thrilled to have another participant on the team. Well, hopefully Morgan will do more than just participate, coach. Ah, let me guess, Gary. You're one of those win-at-all-cost parents. No, not really. Gary, it's important that we teach these little guys, the youth of the nation, mm -hmm. that uh, in the real world, there are no winners and losers only participators. I don't understand. Okay, well, let me break it down. One day, little Morgan is going to apply for his dream job. Yeah. But there are going to be a hundred other little Morgans who want that same job. Mm -hmm. So the boss can only give the job to all of them. What? Isn't that great? No, that's the opposite of the real world. Morgan, why don't you just go run and play? Coach, healthy competition is a good thing. Oh, well, I believe in competition, Gary. <laughs> I keep score. Right now, it's 25 to 25. In soccer? Yeah. That seems like a really high score. Well, that's because anytime I see these kids do anything, and I mean anything, I award both teams a goal. <laughs> Way to breathe, guys. Way to breathe. Keep what breathing. What are you doing? Gary. History has proven that societies based on everyone getting rewarded equally, regardless of their work, are extremely successful. Ha have you ever read Animal Farm? Yes. Those pigs were geniuses. No, look at these kids. They're so bored. That one's literally on the ground picking dandelions. Uh, no, he's literally picking his future. And one day, people will pay him millions for it. <laughs> Oh my goodness, it's been five minutes. Time for trophy break, kids! Trophy break! Here we go! <laughs> All right, kids. All right, trophy time. Here we go. Hunter, you get a trophy for kicking the ball out of bounds because you don't believe in boundaries, do you? That's a really bad lesson for children. All right, and Joey gets a trophy for using his hands. Way to think outside the box, buddy. Don't do that. Just don't okay. do that. Okay, and uh, Mikey gets a trophy for eating the most orange slices. Yes, there you go, bud. No one should consume that amount of vitamin C. And Lindsay, Lindsay gets a trophy for being a girl. <laughs> what an accomplishment, right? So Good job. All right, all right, now get back out there so you can earn the rest of these. All right, life lessons, guys. Coach, award should be for those who achieve excellence through hard work. Oh, so ignorant, Gary. 
Do you think Abraham Lincoln became president because of hard work? Yes. No! <laughs> he became president because his parents told the other candidate's parents, look at my son. He clearly does not have a lot going for him, and this would do wonders for his self-esteem. Honor! That is a red card for running too fast. You're making the slower kids look bad, specifically Mikey. Keep eating those orange slices, Mikey! <laughs> you are destroying these kids' motivation. Gary, McDonald's is paying 30000 a year. These kids don't need motivation anymore. That's great. You have the worst coaching style in the world. Morgan's going to play for a different team. Morgan, come over here. All right, All listen right. up, little maggots. This is the most important game of your pathetic lives. <laughs> Remember this. Blood is just red loser water leaving the body. <laughs> Concussions, just a figment of your imagination. <laughs> Ruha! Let's go sign you up for golf. <laughs> All right, get out there. <clears throat> there really was a biblical principle. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. <clears throat> <clears throat> Galatians 6. We're going to read verses 7 through 10. I'm reading from the New International Version. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature or the flesh, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who, to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, obviously, in this skit that we saw, we saw two extremes and we were participants in a, um, in a nameless organization in which, as we were members, our kids went out and played soccer, or when they were little, they would call it mall ball, because wherever that ball went, that's where all the kids got mauled. It just happened. <laughs> they were all, everybody, and sometimes including the goalie, was running after this ball regardless of where it was, even out of bounds. And <clears throat> they got a trophy by simply being on the team. And I am all in favor of encouraging our kids, um, but sometimes in America we get this mentality either that if we don't win, we are losers, but on the other hand, if we just show up, we are winners. And the truth of God's word is found somewhere in between and there is where we need to see their definition of success. Now, the Bible here talks about sowing and reaping. Obviously, if we just sow effort, how much will we reap? And so we have to ask the question, it's, it's not so much that we are trying, but it is how we are trying. Now, we're going to kind of unwrap this a little bit. Because it's, it's easy for us, as we are in the kingdom of God, to be trying so hard to do what is right, and it seems like there is no fruit. There is no good that seems to come of it. We try to evangelize at our workplace, and nobody gets saved. We see others in our workplace lying and getting ahead, and yet we realize that according to God's word, that is not what we should do, but because we don't do that, so it seems we are not getting the sales that the others are getting. What do we do? So it is not so much the issue of trying, but it is how we try. It is the effort, but it is the heart in which we give. It is the sacrifice that we give. Now, in the little hypothetical story that I shared with you, both the winner and the person who came in last place 
probably tried equally hard. It's just that the person in last place had hundreds of times more obstacles to overcome than the one in first place. And for that reason, there's something even within us. If we were to see a movie like this, you too would probably want to stand and cheer him on as you saw the heartbreak and the difficulty and the struggle, and yet he overcome. And maybe it was by his continual faith in Christ and by a passage like this. That we are not to become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. And so, the question then becomes, not so much are we winning, but are we quitting? And as I mentioned to you, it's almost as if when you become a Christian, the devil puts a bullseye on your back, and he will do everything he can to take you down, to neutralize you, to discourage you, to make you sit on the sidelines where maybe you think you'll still get a trophy, right? And, and the, the truth, though, is that it's never on the sidelines that we win. It is never on the sidelines that we succeed, according to God's definition of success. It's always when we try hard and sacrifice and give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. All right. This idea of sowing and reaping. Uh, obviously, we're, we're probably all familiar with it. How many of you, show of hands, have ever sown a seed and you watched it grow? You stood there over and over and you watched. No, I'm just kidding. But after a while, watering, fertilizing, etc., tilling the soil, removing the weeds, you, you saw it grow. Okay? And so we're familiar with this concept of sowing and reaping. God says that if, if we catch a hold of this, the promise is that at a proper time, we will reap a harvest. And so as I'm going through this, this sermon, I want you to, in your mind, be thinking, what are you sowing? What are you sowing? What are you giving yourself to? What is the goal of your life? Or at least maybe one of those goals. And what does it have to do with sowing? Then I, then I want to ask you, have you reaped anything from it? What have you seen as a result of it? Now, I'm not going to say that my wife and I are some outstanding parents. Maybe my wife is. Uh, I'm not going to say that we have just done it the right way because that would be a lie. Uh, we dearly love our five children. We have made, I have made plenty of mistakes in my parenting. And yet with those mistakes, God managed to somehow pour his grace out on me and my wife as we would apologize to our children, as God would somehow work this miracle of forgiveness in the child's heart and would truly forgive us. And as we stand back, there is perhaps no greater joy in our hearts, our hearts, than to see our children truly loving Jesus and following him. No greater joy for us. And, and, and we are not perfect parents. My wife far more closer than me, of course. But, you know, I, we just stand back and we say, thank you, God, that in the midst of my personal blundering, you did this in their lives. Thank you, God. And God is so good in that way. And so we can see, okay, well, we've, we planted and we watered and fertilized and we actually brought other people that we trusted in and helped and, and we've seen a harvest here. But what happens when you don't? Because I'll be honest with you, go back 10 years, for some of my kids, I'm scratching my head wondering, God, when are they going to get it? When are they, all of this sowing that we've been doing and fertilizing and trying to pull the weeds, and, and we, we, even in the midst of our blowing, God, when are we going to see this? Because your word promises us. Now, our kids have never done the dregs and alcohol and that kind of thing, but you know, there were definitely concerns in our heart at times as we see this rebellion starting to come up. And, and God just challenged us every time that there was a problem, go to, to, go to God in prayer. 
And some of you, you have tried so hard, and you are still in that process where we were at maybe five, ten years ago. God, when? When? And you have sown, and you have sown, and you're wondering, God, when is the harvest? Or maybe in the area of your finances, you have worked hard. The scripture says all hard work brings what? A profit. All hard work brings a profit. And you have worked hard, and you have labored hard, and you're wondering, God, where's the profit? And you're wondering, God, I mean, I have tried to do this with integrity, and yet, Lord, where is the profit in this? Maybe if I lied a little bit more, maybe if I kind of uh, cheated on the integrity a bit, maybe there would be more success. I see it around me. You see it everywhere in the world. You certainly see it in politics. I won't go there. And you're just wondering right now where you're at, God, when am I going to reap this harvest? Some of us have been seeking to reach our neighbors for Christ. And you have actually had the opportunity to share Christ with them. You have served them. You've helped them numerous times. You know, there was, it was amazing. I had a neighbor who moved in for about one year. His mother lived, no, his, his grandmother, excuse me, his grandmother lived on the very same street that my dad was born and raised on. Actually, she lived directly across the street, Reamer Avenue, Wilmington, Delaware. And his grandmother knew my grandmother. He would even tell me about, you know, when he would go over there that his dad would have trains in the basement. And when I asked my mom, because I didn't know a whole lot about this, she said, oh, yeah, there was a neighbor, a lady who lived across the street, and her husband was an alcoholic, and he would have trains, and he would do his little hobby of trains down in the basement. And my mom would explain how there were times in which when her husband would get drunk, afterwards she would come over to Dorothy, that's my grandmother's name, And my grandmother would minister to her. I'm not sure my grandmother ever saw her give her heart to Christ. And she never saw her husband. But my grandmother, who was a believer in Jesus, sowed and sowed and sowed. And according to God's word, it says, if we do this at the proper time, you will Reap harvest. Now, maybe your idea of a harvest is different than God's idea. That happens to me frequently. I have certain expectations. I'm going to do this, and I'm expecting this, and God does it a different way. Doesn't that frustrate you? But I would have to say that God's way is always the best way. God's harvest is always the perfect harvest. As long as I don't mess it up, seriously. That is God's heart. What if we labor for years and years and see no harvest? What if we prayed for financial breakthrough for years and years and still discover none? Or how about health breakthrough, but we find none? And as I say, what if we've evangelized and loved and served and sacrificed for our neighbor, but they still reject Christ? Do we, do we give up? Do we give up on doing it? See, that's not an option. I remember several years ago, I was the, the paint touch-up business that I've been doing, well, since I guess 91 um, I do it far fewer these days. I'm grateful for that. But there was a time in which there were numerous hiccups, especially when the dealerships that I cater to and do my work uh, were going through a hard time, and they were all wanting a handout, bailout from the government. Sales tanked, of course. Uh, there's quite a bit of recovery. I am grateful for that. But at time, that crisis, that I, I think I had to let go of every single employee, or just about. And and. The business, my business, changed dramatically. So I started looking, continuing to do it, started looking at other possibilities. 
I stumbled across an opportunity online. I purchased the, the book and learned about it. And it's a very simple concept. And the, the name of the business that I gave was Integrity Curbside Services. And, and all it did, and you've probably seen these flyers on your doors that says, we're coming by in your neighborhood tomorrow, and we're going to be painting um, numbers, addresses on your curbside. So if this is what you would like done, the cost is 15 bucks. Put this, you know, out on your door or wherever and... and Somehow, uh, let us know that this is what you you want done. But the way that these, because I had to analyze this, the way they appeal in in every single one that I had seen was to try and make it sound as if they were representing the Homeowners Association. The Homeowners Association has given a thumbs up on this idea. The Homeowners Association is all in favor of this, and they want you to do it. Now, without specifically lying, they really are lying. They're, they're trimming on the truth. And so I said, well, I can't do that. And so I, I was very honest in how I did it. Now, those people who were doing this, and they were talking, they, I had actually talked to some in person and how their company had grown. My goal was to get a number of employees. Uh, very simple concept, but they all lacked integrity in how they appealed to the public. I realized I can't do that I tried three different ways to make this work, and none of them worked. None of them. And I realized that for the most part, the way you make this company work is by hedging on the truth. But I couldn't do that. Now, God chose for me not to do that business. I test marketed it three different ways, didn't work. Maybe there was a fourth that way out there, out there that God didn't show me, but the door closed. And I could not compromise my integrity. But I still believe that all hard work yields a profit. It's just not going to be in that business. Because in order for it to succeed, apparently, I would have to compromise. And I realized, God, I can't do that. You're going to have to provide for my family a different way. There's going to have to be a carvest a different way. Now, can I just say... That you may be trying, you may, your goal may be to win people at your workplace or for your, your children to grow up knowing the Lord or for your spouse to, uh, to, to really start pursuing Christ or your neighbors. You're trying to serve and labor, but how you're doing it may not be the ideal way. Now, I am all in favor. God simply says, make disciples. We do whatever we can to make disciples, and there are many ways to make disciples. But as you look at that passage in Matthew 28, it has to do with sharing the gospel, and it has to do with teaching them everything whatsoever I've commanded you, helping them grow up and mature. It's not just winning the lost, it's bringing those who are now, who have now come to Christ to maturity in Christ. Now, this is our goal. We also realize, according to 1 Corinthians 3, many of you have read this passage, he says that I planted, Apollos watered, but God did what? He gave the increase. You see, it's only God that can change the heart, and it's only God who can truly make a disciple. And what's amazing about this process, we find in 1 Thessalonians 3, for example, that Timothy is called a co-laborer with God. Can you believe that? You, my friends, and me, we are co-laborers with Jesus Christ in this awesome commission to make disciples. But it eventually it is God who is working in a way that we cannot, and he is the one who brings in that type of a harvest. The Bible also says in Isaiah 55 the Bible says that the word goes out. God's word goes out. And it does not return empty, but it accomplishes his purpose. And I'm going to just tell you that even though you don't see something happen, even though you've been ministering to this, uh, imp- this uh, person in your workplace or a neighbor that's just been through a divorce, 
and you're trying to reach them with the gospel and the hope that's in Christ, and you're serving and loving on them, you, 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 you allow them, you're crying on your shoulder and, and sharing the love of Christ with them, sharing the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ's resurrection. And yet, it just seems that nothing comes of it. There is no harvest. Is God's word true? Is there something inside of you that makes you want to say, then why do I do this? But you see, God's word says that by sharing that word of truth with them, it is doing something just like the seed under the surface of the soil is growing and you cannot see it. God is doing something. The seeds that you have been planting and you see no harvest, you don't even see the green sprouts coming up yet. God is doing something because his promise is that his word will never, ever return empty, but will accomplish the very desire and purpose in his heart. It will do this because the word of God, the truth of the gospel is powerful. It is not up to you how eloquently you present the gospel, though that's, that's helpful. It is God. We sow the seed. God is the one who reaches down beneath the soil of the heart, and he's the one that brings life because the seed must first die for it to live. Right? So our methodologies, they may change. When you go fishing, and you go to a certain fishing hole four or five times in a row, and you don't catch anything, you kind of get a clue, maybe I should find another fishing hole. So you fish in another place. Maybe even you keep trying to fish in other places until you do find some fish. Or perhaps you change your bait, or you change the time of day that you go. So God may show you different ways of laboring, of doing good, but it's all going to be up to him to bring the increase. So as I'm saying, you may not find fruit in what you're doing. And maybe God is saying you need to try it this way. You need to do this differently. Maybe you're not coupling it enough with prayer. I'm just going to encourage you, though, be careful because we can begin to feel that it's all up to us. That if we just did it more, if we prayed more and prayed more and did more of this, and we can begin to eventually feel as if we're that little hamster on the treadmill. I'm just running as fast as we can and still nothing is happening. And I'm just going to encourage you, be very, very careful about that. Because God is simply asking us, follow me, give, sacrifice. Let me bring the increase. But the truth may be, it may be, we may need to be praying more. We may need to be fighting more in prayer because we don't, we, we're not grasping the power of prayer. And that may be true. I'm just saying be careful. I can remember, and, and Cole has shared some stories. Uh, he and I kind of swapped some stories when we were in high school and evangelizing and such. And I know for Cole, uh, he would have those chick tracks. He loved the chick tracks. Um, I just found anything. You know, there was one little tract that I used, and, and this was when in my 11th and 12th grade years. I think Cole and I, we, as we would talk, we probably evangelized every day, several times a day. Um, it was like eating and breathing. It was like, this is what we loved doing. One day, man, I can hardly wait till I do this, like forever and always. And Cole would share, he would have these chick tracks, and, and he was sharing with me one day, he came in, and he, he had some chick tracks, and people were gathering around him, begging for these chick tracks. Now, if you're not familiar with chick tracks, and, and I can't agree with all of their positions on a lot of different stuff. Okay, but there was some that really challenged with regard to the gospel, and they have pictures. 
So people loved these pictures. They loved reading the stories. And as they read the stories of this person, what was the, this life is for you? What is it called? Do you remember, Cole? Okay. All right. You heard that. And, and people would, but, but Cole began to realize that as many people as would receive these, he was kind of wondering, when are they going to give their hearts to Christ? And I'm sure like me, he was praying for them. For some of them that I knew in, in my 11th and 12th grade, I've known them for 12 years. I remember so many times kneeling beside my bed and literally crying and weeping for these kids because I'd known them so long. And for some of the guys, I'd been in fights with them and we had made up. You know, that made us like brothers. And, but the truth is, they would go out in the party scene and it's as if they would hear the truth and the devil, it was like seed sown on the pathway. The devil would come and snatch that seed off. And it would break my heart. Cole was telling me that after, I believe it was after you had graduated, Cole, and he had shared the gospel probably hundreds of times. And then he gets to hear this story of someone well after high school, correct me if I'm wrong, Cole, that attributes at least in part, their salvation to Cole and sharing the gospel with them. And at first, they did not choose to follow Christ. And it wasn't until well after high school they said, Cole, thank you. You know, As I shared the gospel many, many times, that was part of my heartache. God, when is this, when are these seeds going to spring up to eternal life? And, and, you know, I had this one tract in which a guy was lifting up his shirt and there was a big hole in the middle with a fly flying through it. And it says above him, what fills the gap? Really <laughs> corny. But I loved it. And I would, just, I would just sit down and I would have chit-chat with somebody at lunch or study hall. And I would just kind of, you know, I, I, I want to share something with you. Can you just take a moment? And it would probably take you like a minute or two minutes at the most to read it. And I would throw this down there. What fills the gap? You turn the page. Does money fill the gap? And a little picture to demonstrate that. And no. Do, do drugs fill the gap? Does sex fill the gap? Does this or that? And, and you come to the conclusion, wow, we've like tried everything in the world and nothing fills the gap. And then the very last little tiny page, it briefly shares the gospel and points to Jesus. And it says, God created us for a relationship with him, but we, in our own smarts, have chosen to do it my way. And we have this gap, this hole, this void, this emptiness, because we are not in relationship with God. And so it tells us what Christ had to do to bridge that relationship. And so I can remember sharing Christ so many times, and yet it's as if God Where's the harvest? Where's the harvest? And I'm going to be honest with you. It would have been very easy had I not been so immersed in prayer at the, at the time. And my concern was, I just want to share. I just want to share. I didn't concern myself with the harvest. And I think in part, sometimes I do concern myself so much for the harvest. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Our goal, church, your goal is to make disciples. But God is the one who's going to do that. It is our goal to plant and water. I planted, Apollos watered, God brings the increase. It is God's word as we share it from a life story, from hard circumstances. When we came to Christ, we share the word, and that word will accomplish what God's desire is. And so we sow, and we sow, and we sow. And I did hear back here and there, you know, Mike, thank you. And this guy was already a Christian. And I'm thinking, but my goal was to win people to Christ. This guy's already a Christian. But it somehow impacted him. And he thanked me. And your lives are going to impact people beyond what you will ever know. What you will ever know. But it does say here, it says... Do not become weary in doing good. As if you're so weary you want to quit and throw in the towel. Don't become weary 
and doing good. And if you're weary this morning, I'm going to challenge you. Let Christ encourage you. That is to take courage and instill it in you. And allow this weariness, just let him slough it off and allow him to minister what his purposes for you are, his love and affection for you are. That you have, you're not some failure. We, we weigh ourselves in the scale of men's applause so many times. You know, the person who crosses the finish line first, great job, and that's what we are yearning for. And God is saying, that is not what I want you working for. And so God will purposely withhold the applause, withhold the kudos, withhold the praise and the honor from men because he wants us laboring only for him and not for me, not for men's praise. Oh, Mike, what a wonderful job. We labor for the audience of one. Do we not? One. Not for men. Not even for one another. The audience of one. Do not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, you will reap a harvest. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. I, I cannot take this any other way then in this way, that that harvest from the seeds that you are sowing, that harvest will come in your lifetime. Read that. Doesn't that seem to be what it is saying? I cannot avoid that. It will happen, and it will happen in your lifetime. You will reap a harvest. What it does not tell us is that that harvest will be seen by your eyes. It will happen. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I can only trust God in what I have done for your kingdom. I would love to see more fruit, but the truth is, God, that's in your hands. And it, I, I pray this, and I pray this for you. God, allow us, by your grace, to see the fruit of our labors. We need that. We, we need that. You need that. You need to be able to see with your eyes that your hard work has produced something of significance. I would say that one person in my life that has inspired me so much is a young lady who has been through an awful lot, and I have known her for over, I'm going to say 20, about 20 years. And Mary Smith has been through so much with what Steve has gone through, and I remember in the early days of her walk with Christ, she just wanted to give up all the time, and yet she kept on and kept on and kept on, and she has been a trooper in how she has sown, and she is at the forefront with praying, with serving. Her, she texts people. I'm sure many of you get her texts and scripture passages of encouragement because she's praying for you. And Mary, I only hope that God will allow you to see more and more of the fruit of your labor. Because sometimes, and she's like us, we labor so much, and it's like, wow, um, God, is, is that it? Is that it? And I'm going to tell you this, no, it is not. No, it is not. There is so much that happens underneath the soil that you can never see. And the only resolve that I have come to is in my life, I am, I am willing to live with that. If there's just, if all I see is a little fruit, okay, so be it. I am trusting God that he has done so much beyond what I can see. So I'm going to say that in this life, we do reap a harvest. You may not always see all of that harvest, though. 
But now I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Where is this harvest that we are promised? In chapter 15, verse 58, let me just preface before I read this scripture passage. Let me just preface this scripture verse with this, as far as what this chapter is about. It starts off with Paul sharing what is probably one of the oldest creeds in Christianity. And it has to do with Jesus' death and resurrection and resurrection appearances. Perhaps the, if there is an older creed, it's the one that he shares in chapter 11, what I received, I pass on to you, that the night Jesus was betrayed, and then Jesus basically shares communion or the Lord's Supper with his disciples. Here, the focus is the resurrection of Jesus. You know, it's amazing how skeptics in our day will talk about how, you know, Jesus probably, he, he didn't rise from the dead. That's, you know, as word got passed around and stories embellished, it eventually became a legend that Jesus bodily rose from the dead somehow, you know. You know, that's, that's just a legend. It's a, it's a myth. It's, it's embellishment of the truth. And, but the problem is, we have a creed in the very beginning of this chapter that goes back to the resurrection counts that were embodied in a creed probably within a few years of when the church began. And there's no opportunity for legend. Well, we move on. And so he then talks about how without the resurrection of Christ, our faith is vain, it's useless. If we don't rise like Christ rose, we just have this life, and that's it? That's why you're willing to die for him? Disconnect here. And he says, no, Christ is the first fruits of the, of the resurrection. After he comes back, we too will be raised to life. And then he talks about how we will, how right now our bodies are perishable and mortal, but then we will be clothed with the imperishable and the, and the immortal in the twinkling of an eye. And he says this right before this passage we're about to read. He says, and we sung about it, death is destroyed. Sin is no more. When Christ returns, he destroys sin. He destroys the curse of sin, which is death. And there is victory in Christ. And in view of this, he says in verse 58, therefore. Now, wherever you come across that word, therefore, you want to know what it's there for, right? Now, I've shared with you, this. he's talking about the resurrection and our hope of our resurrection. He says, therefore, my dear friends, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Don't become weary and want to throw in the towel. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I would have to say, that the main reason for Paul saying this is because your labor is not in vain, meaning that you will receive your reward in that next life at the resurrection. You will have then the opportunity to see what's been going on underground, so to speak. Because between now and then, you may see very little, very little. But there is a harvest. God is at work. And so he's saying here, you know what? And I'm going to encourage you this. Even if you see nothing, no fruit, and you're sacrificing and laboring, and you see no fruit in this life, know this, that your labor in the Lord has not been for nothing. You will, there, you will see it at least in that day when you were raised from the dead. And so, the harvest is both in this life and in the life to come. And here's my question. Should 
you see little to no fruit from all of your hard work, would you give up? Will you turn your back on the Lord and just say, God, why am I sacrificing like this? Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. In our life group, we were, <clears throat> all life groups were looking at the concept of worry in, <clears throat> excuse me, in the book of Proverbs, which is where we're doing our study, the book of Proverbs. And in this particular verse, I wanted us to focus on this idea that trusting in God is the exact opposite of worry, because worry opens the door to fear. We looked how worry and concern were different. Worry introduces fear and undermines our ability to trust God. And he talks about, the, you know, lean not on your own understanding, but trust the Lord, and he'll make your path straight. But I want us to read a different passage, a few verses down, and it's in verses 9 and 10. And it says, honor the Lord. You with me, Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Now, let me just pause there. It is not uncommon in our day for people to teach that tithing is not a biblical principle, at least not in the New Testament. I'm, I'm aware of that slant that people put on it. After uh, Christ's resurrection, you don't find the word tithe used in the New Testament. And all I'm going to challenge us on this, because I'm not going to branch out into a teaching on this, is that this idea of honoring the Lord with your wealth is found both in the Old Testament and in the New. It is, it is given to those who are wealthy and those in extreme poverty. In the Old Testament, it's clear that the Bible commanded them to give because the tithe belonged to the Lord. Actually, when you go through both Old and New Testament, we are stewards of all that God gives us, and there are certain things, like in the garden, the tree of knowledge of the good and evil and the tree of life. Do not eat anything from those trees. Those are mine. The sin was that they ate of them. But there is always something that belongs to the Lord, like the tithe, both Old and New Testament. <clears throat> but we were always commanded to tithe, including the poor. For us to say, well, God, I don't have enough money to give to you, tells us that we don't understand this principle. Now, here's what I'm going to say. Whether God has blessed you financially or not, regardless, the command here is to honor the Lord with your wealth. As this Old Testament principle of giving or tithing, if you will, moves into the New Testament, we don't see that it changes as a result of the cross. We see the sacrificial system. We see it change. We see the political priesthood. We see that change. We do not see the tithe change. We see the Sabbath change, but we don't see this principle. So let's move on. So you're honoring the Lord with your wealth, first fruits of your crops, and then it says, then. Then, when you're doing this, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. If you give financially to the Lord, he will bless you how? Will he bless you, say, with long life? Does it say? Does he bless you with lots of friends? I mean, all of these things are great, but it says he will bless you with the very seed, the type of seed that you, that you have sown. That, that's a very biblical principle. Is a very excellent agricultural principle. Test it. Go into your garden and, and plant bean seeds, and let's see what you get. Now, if you get corn, could you please immediately call me and say, Pastor Mike, you're wrong. Uh, because I would like to know. But if you sow bean seeds, you're going to get what, church? Beans. Thank you so much. If you sow uh, or plant an orange tree and you get pears, that's a problem. You may very well have planted the wrong tree. <laughs> but what you sow, the type of seed you sow, that is what you are going to reap. And so when you're in financial need, 
we don't look at this passage and say, this passage is meant for everybody but me. No. It's probably written specifically for you. (laughs) Because here's the amazing thing. You know, when we are in need, many times that is when we refuse to give. We want to get, we want to receive. We're praying, oh God, provide. And God says, then you need to give. Turn with me now to Psalm 126. In Psalm 126, this is the captives of Babylon. They have journeyed home. It's been 70 years of captivity. Their their background of that nation was sinful, was rebellious. It was idolatrous. It was everything that God told them not to do. And there was this sense of repentance nationally. And these Babylonian captives, as they're coming back to build the temple, there is this, they're called the remnant in the prophets. There is this sense of renewal and restoration that has taken place. And I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but I would like to read the last three verses. Verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Do you get that? You see, the Negev was the wilderness. Not like sand dunes type of desert, but it was a wilderness. Not much grew there. It was hot. It was dry. And you would usually not find very many springs. And so for God, for you to do this as a people who have lost everything would be like streams in the Negev. Some of you are already relating to this. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Here's what I think the Lord is wanting. Here's the takeaway I think God wants us to have from this. In the midst of our difficulties, in our need, when we are praying that somehow God through someone else, however he manages to do it, will minister to my need, As we are weeping, what does this verse say that they are also doing? As they are weeping, they are going out with what? With seeds to sow. Let's let's remove ourselves from the gimme, gimme, I need, I need mentality. I'm not saying don't pray, of course you do, but let's realize that our goal in life, regardless of our circumstances, they should never change our purpose. It is always to sow, always to sow, always doing good and seeking to never become weary and not gauging our success by whether we come in first place or not, or by just simply trying. It's how we try. It's how we engage in that sacrifice and serve at any cost to me, uh, to you. But we carry the seeds, and his promise is this, that if you do this, and in the midst of hardship and difficulty and sorrow, you're giving and you're sowing, you will reap harvest. You will You will come back with joy and sheaves, sheaves of wheat, sheaves of the harvest under your arm. Here is the bottom line. Our success in this life, as I mentioned, is not measured by the applause of men 
on the scales of the world's definition of success. It is only on God's definition, and that always is accompanied by sacrifice. Doing good no matter what, whether I get something out of it or not. Even if others end up reaping what I have sown. Paul says this, he's, in 1 Corinthians 4, he has sown so much. We have become poor that you might become rich. Was it Paul's desire that he was doing this to become wealthy? No, of course not. It was to see God changing their lives. How discouraging that was at times when, if you ever read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, it's like one problem after another, and Paul is just wondering, Oy vey, when are they going to get it, God? When are they going to get it? As a dad trying to train his son or daughter how to do what's right, okay, bathroom, time for another spanking, okay. When, is there, when are the spankings going to end? They end, by the way, if you're wondering. They end. And, and the sons and daughters, they grow up, and they can actually become godly men and women and, and live a life sold out for Jesus. But in the meantime, there is so much sacrifice. And it's not what I get out of this deal. It's not what you get out of this. You sow the seed, and others may reap. And for Paul, he actually words it this way. We have given so much, the world looks at us, and he uses this phrase, we have become the scum of the earth. Some of us are, I feel like pond scum, I really do. I feel like I've just given and nobody appreciates me. (laughs) Nobody appreciates my sacrifice. Was, that's really not why we're in it, is it, though? You know, if you were to look at Billy Graham, my goodness, there's probably not a man alive who has lived with such integrity and has won more people to the Lord. I would venture to say he has won far many than Paul the Apostle. But here's also what I know. And this is no slight to Billy Graham's crusade, none at all. They say only about seven or eight percent of those who make the decisions continue to pursue the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that he chose a wrong method. Philip is called Philip the Evangelist, and he went around doing this. Paul was led by the Lord for a number of different reasons that I won't get into to do it differently. Paul, when he went around evangelizing, he planted churches. So he wasn't there for a couple of nights and then moved on. He was there for a couple of months or years, and then he moved on. And I would venture to say that there was tremendous fruit, but that fruit remained. Now, Billy Graham may have won many more to the Lord. I think sometimes... God just needs to change our view of what success is. Is it how much fruit? A lot that that's successful? Because if that's the case, then the Old Testament prophets were not very successful. With so many of them, God said, go and preach to them. And Oh, by the way, they're not going to listen to you. But do it anyway. <laughs> what motivation? All right, let's go, Lord. I want to preach. I want to get thrown into an empty cistern. That's what happened with Jeremiah. As you've accepted Christ, and as you move through this walk with him, and as you're sowing and sacrificing, I'm going to encourage you, do not give up. Don't ever adopt the mentality when you're in a time of need that it's now others. You come serve me. It's all about me now. Never settle in that mindset. You might stumble into it, recognize it, get out, but never settle in that mindset. Always have seeds. Always go out, even in weeping, sowing. This is our destiny, church. 
May God grant you the opportunity to see the fruit of your labors. What a joy that is to look in your children or a neighbor that's come to Christ or a, a coworker that you've been reaching out to for 20 years and they finally come to Christ. My older brother, just older than me, 15 years. I'd become so weary praying for him. To be honest with you, I may have prayed for him a few times a year, whereas before I would pray for him every day, 15 years. And then he finally gave his heart to Christ. I pray that God would allow you to see the fruit of your labors. But my question today is, what if you don't? Don't give up. You will reap a harvest in due time, God's timing. But in the life to come, so much more, so much more. Can you stand with me? As we pray today, I want to pray for you that the weariness that may have been settling upon you. And I don't know about you, but as a guy, sometimes I'm not real in touch with my emotions. Anybody kind of feel that way sometimes? I'm the only one, okay. But sometimes I'm weary and I don't even realize it. And not too long ago, God showed me, Mike, you're weary. You need to just rest in my strength right now, in my grace, because it's enough for you. And I'm, that's my prayer for you. So, Father, I, I ask that as, as we are laboring for your kingdom, and if we find ourselves at that place where we're feeling so weary, wondering, should we continue to sacrifice this much? My prayer, God, for every single one of us is speak truth to us. What is your success, God? How much fruit do we need to see? I do ask, Lord, that we would see some of this fruit that we have labored for. I ask, Father, that we would see much. But in the meantime, would you give us patience, love, and endurance as we labor for the Lord. It is not in vain. There is a harvest coming. God, you are going to be doing something in our lives. You're going to be doing something in this generation, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods. You're going to be doing something marvelous in this nation. But Father, I'm asking, please don't let us give up. And as we labor, Lord, I ask you, minister. Father, in that day that we stand before you and you say, well done, good and faithful servant. May we have, bound, may we have been found faithful in your kingdom till then. Father, thank you that you love us and that you will always meet our needs and that you are working behind the scenes whether we see it or not. And it is in this that we trust. You are good. Encourage our hearts today, God, in Jesus' name.